Hello, thanks for listening to another episode. This is a free podcast, but unfortunately I can't do it free forever. But if you want to help out, you can donate to the podcast or download a free audiobook from Audible by visiting audibletrial.com forward slash teacherluke or just click an Audible picture on my website. That's how you can help out if you want to and make sure this podcast stays free in the future. Now let's get started with this new episode of the podcast. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hi, welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. Here is the next part of my description of my recent trip around California. Uh, This is episode 289, the California Road Trip Part 2. And this is a description of my honeymoon. But I'm also going to tell you about the cultural, geographical and historical context of the places that we visited. And I'll give you some practical tips and teach you some British and American English too. All right. Uh, This is part two of the California series. So let's carry on. In part one, I told you about the itinerary for our trip some of our first impressions of arriving in Los Angeles, um, some notes and advice on customer service and dealing with waiters and staff. I told you some stuff about the car that we rented. Uh, I gave you an audiobook recommendation. And um, I talked to you a little bit about California's uh, curious marijuana laws. So let's carry on in this episode. Um, First of all, I'd actually like to give you a brief history of California. That's the first thing we're going to deal with in this episode. A brief history of California, because it helps to understand what the place is all about when you actually learn about its history. So here we go. Here is a very brief history of California. So I'm going to become a sort of history teacher um, at the moment. Um, Let me just remind you that you can find uh, a lot of what I'm saying written, transcribed, um, either fully transcribed or just written as notes on the page for this episode at teacherluke.co.uk. So I recommend that you go and check it out. You can read many of the things that I'm saying. It's a good way of just kind of you know, uh, allowing you to study the language. You can actually see the words. You can, you know, if there are words you want to check, you can just click on them and then do a Google search with those words. You can read and listen at the same time if you're reading the fully transcribed parts. It could be a good way of just sort of um, solidifying the English that you're hearing. um, And it could help you to kind of, you know, understand it in, in greater depth. Or, if you prefer, if you prefer, even you can just uh, you know just chill out and just carry on listening because that ultimately is the the main point. It's just something for you to listen to. Um, so here is a brief history of California. Okay, so do you know what the nickname of California is? Because many of the states in the United States have nicknames. Well, California is known as the Golden State uh, because of the sunshine, I expect, but also mainly because of the gold that was found there in the mid-19th century. And that was a very important moment in the history of California and in the history of uh, the United States and, to an extent, the history of the world. Um, So um, California is known as the Golden State. Um, Mid-19th century, gold was discovered there. But let's go further back at the start of this little bit of history. Let's go further back in time to consider the first people to have populated California or the land that we now call California. Uh, So we're going back a long, long time ago 
but not in a galaxy far, far away. No, this isn't Star Wars. Um, but we're going to go back a long, long time ago. Uh, people first arrived in California probably about 12,000 years ago. Um, and those people were descendants of the people who travelled across um, the Bering Strait from the Asian continent about 40,000 years ago. Um, uh, so they travelled, these people who travelled basically from the Asian continent to the American continent across that area between Alaska and Russia, which is known as the Bering Strait. So people sort of migrated across that piece of land about 40,000 years ago. Uh, those people travelled into North America probably in order to follow food. That could have been migrating herds of animals, I expect. So they gradually moved across into the American continent, across the Bering Strait, probably to follow food. Now, at that time, it seems that Alaska and what is now Russia were connected, in fact. Obviously, now there's, you know, ocean that divides those two bits of land. But uh, 40,000 years ago, those two bits of land seemed to be connected uh, by an exposed stretch uh, of land, um, which later was covered over by the ocean when the sea level rose and that separated America and Russia or America and the Asian continent. But at the time, there was a stretch of land there. So those people came, became the first Native Americans, in fact. Um, originally from the Asian continent, then they became Native Americans after they travelled across. They eventually found their way south to the area that we now call California. Uh, and that was probably about 12,000 years ago. And they lived there in various tribes in different parts of the state, undisturbed for a long time. Then, in the 15th and 16th centuries, um, Europeans began travelling across the Atlantic, and America was discovered. I say discovered, but, you know, obviously there were there were already people there, but from the European point of view, it was a new land, and so it was discovered by these explorers. Um, it was the Spanish, uh, with Hernando Cortes initially, and then other explorers, who were the first Europeans to enter the area uh, that we now call, that we now know as California, after they fought with the Aztecs and developed a Spanish colony in Mexico. Uh, the Spanish attempted to settle in California and uh, they wanted to find a route that they could use to sail their ships from the Atlantic coast to the Pacific coast. So they wanted to find a way to access Asia. They needed a, uh, a sailing route across the continent, um, but they failed to find one after lots of difficult attempts um, and with some competition as well from uh, the English in the form of Sir Francis Drake, um, who, to the English, Sir Francis Drake is a great explorer, but I think to the Spanish, Sir Francis Drake is basically a pirate who raided the early Spanish settlements in that area uh, and stole lots of their silver. Um, but anyway, the Spanish found it quite hard to settle in California in the beginning because of the difficult access from the Atlantic side and because of like clashes or fights that they had with the native people that were already living there. So they basically ignored California for about 150 years, although they had named the areas of America that they discovered there. Um, they, they, 
named them and claimed them as New Spain. Um, if we look at the origin of the, the name California, it's not entirely clear how California got its name, but it seems that the most popular theory is that it comes from a romantic adventure story uh, by uh, Garcia Ordonez de Montalvo. The story is called Sergas de Esplandian. Check out my pronunciation. Or, in English, The Adventures of Esplandian. And that was written in like 1510. Now, this is a story, a kind of romantic adventure story, which tells of a mythical island called California, which is populated by a race of beautiful and powerful Amazonian warrior women who are called the Califia and who are ruled by the formidable Queen Califia. So this is like a Spanish sort of you know, classic romantic adventure story about this island of gorgeous and powerful Amazonian warrior women called the Califia. And the island they lived on was called California. Okay. In the story, which was very a very popular and well-known story at the time, the Califia were warrior women of and this is a quotation from from the story. Warrior women of vigorous bodies and strong and ardent hearts and of great strength. Um, the queen and her warriors, all of them women, would apparently go on adventurous missions. They'd fly around on griffins. What's a griffin? Well, griffins are awesome legendary animals, legendary creatures that are sort of like a fusion of different animals different powerful animals so basically a griffin has the body of the body tail and back legs of a lion all right the head and and the wings of an eagle and an eagle's talons at its uh, as its front feet so imagine some sort of amazing awesome combination between a lion and an eagle that's what a griffin is so these um these women would fly around on these griffins that lived on the island and they would capture and kill men that they came upon during their travels. And any man that was found in the domain of the Califia, they would catch them and they would eat them. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and so Califia or California in the story is presented as a mythical place that exists sort of near the real world. And the island is described as a kind of paradise filled with gold and precious stones. Um, now, the original Spanish settlers who came to the area uh, first thought that California, the area that you know they first arrived in, they thought that it was an island. And perhaps it was similar enough, maybe the area was similar enough to some aspects of the mythical island in the story. You know, maybe the, the gold or, 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 you know, just the, the beauty of the place um, inspired the settlers to use the name from the story California. So the story was well known and popular enough. And some people believed that it was based on an older myth, which was part of an oral Spanish tradition. Um, so I imagine the idea of California was a, sort of a, a concept that was like half mythological and in the popular consciousness of this sort of um, amazing island, um, certainly with lots of gold and riches and stuff, maybe, I don't know what the Amazonian women aspect comes from, maybe that was the native people or something like that. Anyway, uh, they got a bit carried away, they called it California. Some people may have believed that the myth was true, and that this place really existed, um, 
maybe they they thought that they'd actually arrived there for real, or maybe they were just inspired by a pretty good story. It's not entirely clear, but what we do know for sure is that essentially... California is named after a beautiful and powerful Amazonian warrior queen who used to fly around on a griffin and eat men for breakfast. It's a pretty crazy story, right? Um, It does sound like something from an Arnold Schwarzenegger film from the 1980s or something. And it just shows that California has had a fairly long tradition of grand, glamorous and sexy myth-making and storytelling uh, associated with it. Um... Now, in nineteen in nineteen no in seventeen sixty five, so this is sort of like around one hundred and fifty years after the Spanish first entered the area. Seventeen sixty five, a man named Jose de Galvez, who was an official to the Spanish king, decided that it was a good idea to have another go at claiming New Spain properly before the English or the Russians did it. So it was kind of like a bit of an international competition. He thought, well, I better get in there before anyone else does, especially the English. Um, So this guy, Jose de Galvez, managed to convince the king at the time to let him go on a mission to New Spain, to this part of the west coast of uh, North America, with the intention of claiming that land and then spreading the Roman Catholic faith to the native people that lived there. Now, although it was a very difficult mission with lots and lots of hardship, ultimately it was successful. And several missions, and here by missions I mean like Christian bases, bases for the Catholic faith, centres of of, um, uh, Catholicism, missions, outposts of um, the Catholic Church. Several of these missions were set up on the Californian coast, including key places like the Monterey Bay and in the spot that we now know as San Francisco. Um, The Spanish missionaries, these were the kind of um, uh, the guys, the the priests and uh, people who were trying to, to convert people to Catholicism, the missionaries managed to convert a number of the local natives to Catholicism. Uh, But this was mainly due to the threat of violence, I imagine, or because they managed to pacify the natives with offerings of supplies and tools that they'd never seen before. But, well, however they did it, they, they managed to be sort of reasonably successful in converting some of the natives. Although saying that, I'm sure that the natives were also pretty genuinely impressed by these new people who had arrived and they may have seen the natives may have seen the Spanish and um, settlers as somehow being sent by God. I mean, it must have been pretty difficult for the the natives to understand who these people were, and you know the the sort of slightly advanced technology that they had compared to what the natives had. Um, but um, again, things didn't go completely smoothly uh, for the um, the Spanish missionaries because there was actually quite a lot of resistance from the locals, the natives, who did fight back and they did sort of um, organise themselves into a sort of rebellion against the the, the Spanish colonialists. Colonialists. Um, uh, And they they did fight back. But in the end, the Spanish were sort of numerous enough and powerful enough um, to withstand these resistance movements from the Native Americans, even though, unfortunately... This meant that a lot of native people were killed 
and severely punished in this process. And really, this is all part of the story of how the Native Americans were almost, were eventually almost completely wiped out. Their way of life was, you know, almost completely destroyed in the long population of America by Europeans. Uh, So there is a sad element to this story, and that's just what happened to the native people. Uh, The Spanish settlers and missionaries uh, built forts at strategic locations up the California coasts. So these forts were basically sort of protected bases which helped them to defend their territory against some of the angry natives or possibly to defend this territory against um, invasion by other countries wanting to take this beautiful and rich land that they had managed to claim. Um, so these forts were, were set up, uh, protected bases, um, and then to provide food for the people in these missions or forts, um, pueblos were created around them. And these were basically towns with farms that could produce food. And so these places eventually grew and developed to become cities like Los Angeles, Monterey, and San Francisco, okay? Then um, there was a war of independence in 1810, okay? So imagine that these, the, you know, these Spanish settlers had gone there and they'd been living there for some time and they developed their own uh, communities there. And then in 1810, there was a war of independence and it, and it went on until 1821. All right. Now, this is a similar story to the war of independence against the British, which was fought on the other side of the country. Um, that's the more, probably the more well-known war of independence against the British colonies that allowed, you know, the United States of America to be set up by George Washington and so on, and the founding fathers. But on the other side, there was another war of independence, 1810 to 1821. And this was the colonies in New Spain. And they were basically fed up with the way that they were being ruled from Spain uh, and felt that they didn't have enough freedom or independence. Okay, so they were being ruled, you know, from a distance by the Spanish, and they felt that they they wanted more independence, just like the, you know, just like on the other coast, on the east coast. So the people of New Spain fought the war against the their sort of colonial masters, and they won that war, and uh, they set themselves up as an independent government under the name of Mexico. So the Mexican government took control of New Spain and decided that these missions, these bases, um, they decided that the religious missions uh, had too much power and they closed them, which kind of freed up the land previously owned by the missions. Okay, Now, the priests um, in the missions were still allowed to operate their churches, uh, but the land was to be divided between the Mexican settlers and the Native Americans, Okay. Now, the thing is, though, the Native Americans didn't really have a real understanding of the whole concept of land ownership. And so they either didn't want the land or they didn't understand that it could be even given to them or they didn't know how to deal with it because they'd been living in the missions uh, so long that they were now dependent on the Spanish and Mexican settlers who basically ran the place. Um, Some Native Americans managed to kind of return to their way of life. And some tribes of natives in California had, in fact, managed to avoid being captured or being sort of converted by the mission. So there were still Native Americans in California at the time. But the coastal colonies continued under Mexican control. And the Mexicans in California 
uh, did lots of trade with people from many other places during this period. Uh, you know, um, places, you know, tr- they traded with uh, traders probably from Russia, Asia, or maybe Europe. And so um, this kind of um, enriched the area with the influence of different cultures. And so it continued to develop in its own way. Okay. Um, some people, uh, and mainly these are mainly fur trappers, um, managed to make the very difficult journey from the east coast of the United States by land. So the, remember the, uh, the, the settlements there, in the new in New Spain and California previously had just been Native Americans who were already there, and the Spanish settlers who kind of came across through um, through Mexico, and maybe there was some uh, influence from Asia and Russia and so on. Uh, but uh, the first people to actually come from the east coast of that um, uh, continent uh, were fur trappers, basically. Um, now, what's a fur trapper? Well, fur is like the hair on on the skin of an animal. So that's fur. And so trappers, these are people who trap or hunt animals in order to take their fur. Okay, so it was probably fur trappers uh, who travelled across the country in search of fur. Okay, uh, now remember that it took me and my wife six hours to fly from New York to LA um, just a uh, a couple of weeks ago. Well, in the early 19th century, it would have taken years to make the journey. And in the in the beginning, only the toughest and wildest people could actually survive that journey, which was essentially a massive exploration into unknown wilderness populated by native tribes and dangerous wildlife like grizzly bears. So for these fur trappers, I mean, they had to be incredibly tough uh, and there, there, there must be some incredible adventures that we've never heard of the stories of these guys who managed to travel through the wilderness, um, you know, meeting Native Americans, uh, dealing with, you know, grizzly bears and things. It must have been in- incredibly adventurous and dramatic in some cases. Um, so, But some fur trappers made it all the way to California Um in, in the first half of the 19th century. And these fur trappers were really tough explorers who travelled west in, in search of valuable fur pelts. Uh, a pelt is basically a, a just like a, a, a large piece of skin with fur on it. So you imagine you've, you've caught an animal and you, you know, you've trapped an animal, you kill it and you, you skin the animal, remove its skin... And the remaining sort of skin with fur attached to it is known as a pelt, okay? Uh, so they were in search of valuable fur pelts, basically the skin and fur of different animals. Uh, beaver was probably the most sought-after pelt. What's beaver? Well, you know those animals, they've got big teeth, they swim in rivers, they like to bite trees, they kind of make trees fall down, and then they build dams in rivers. A dam is something that stops the river from flowing. So these beavers, big teeth, you know, uh, brown fur, swim around. They've got a big tail and they bite trees and they've knocked down. They don't knock down trees, but they, they fell trees and they use them to build their dams on rivers, right? Those are beavers. Um, so uh, beavers were probably the most popular pelt. Why? It's, well, it's because beaver fur was used to make 
hats, top hats in Europe. You know those tall hats that the Victorians used to wear? You know those very tall, smart-looking black hats? Well, they were made from beaver fur. It's light, it's strong, it's glossy, and it's warm, which is basically perfect material for a good hat. So there was plenty of demand for beaver fur, as well as plenty of other types of fur too. And the, um, in fact, fur, you know, is a valuable commodity, uh, valuable en- enough for people to kind of go, uh, you know, venture into the wilderness in order to try and find new sources of it. The first fur trappers must have been very tough guys uh, who were almost as wild as the natives that they met along the way. In fact, many trappers probably got to know, well, they definitely got to know the natives and they learned a lot of their knowledge and skill to help them survive in the American wilderness. Just imagine the challenge of trying to cross all of those frontiers. Um, The rivers, huge rivers, the mountain ranges, the deserts in the Midwest, the huge canyons like the Grand Canyon, the big forests, other mountain ranges, um, we're talking about epic journeys here, epic stories. Um, by the so so there you go. You've got California natives, the Spanish settlers, and then fur trappers starting to come in from the east coast. Uh, by the mid eighteen hundreds, the independent nation of the USA, uh, based you know in Washington, was very keen to extend its territory to the west. So at that time, the United States as we know it now was not united. In fact, it was divided between basically the sort of um, United States owned by uh, the Washington-based government and then a lot of Spanish territories, including California, Texas, New Mexico, and so on. So uh, the USA, though, was very keen to extend its territory to the West in order to populate and claim that whole stretch of North America from the East to West Coast. In fact, the prevailing ideology of the time uh, was a very strong feeling that the United States had almost a God-given right to claim that land and that it was the destiny of the people of the United States of America to do so. They felt late they had a claim on all of that land and there was a very powerful feeling that it should become a fully united states from coast to coast and this was the idea of manifest destiny which is a sort of ideology which is basically that um, it is the destiny of the american people to go west and claim that land um, and that it's it, it you know it, it's The land has been given to the American people by God, and so it's their destiny to claim it. So the USA felt that the land was theirs. Uh, It was a God-given right. Um, James Polk was, I think that's how you pronounce his name, Polk. James Polk was the president uh, at this time, and he decided that he wanted to take the lands of Texas, New Mexico, and California. Um, And Texas at the time was a country in its own right, after having broken away from Mexico. Um, And then New Mexico and California were still owned by Mexico at the time, all right? So by this time, at about 1840, more and more settlers had followed the fur trappers west and had settled in California. And this included a man called John C. Fremont, who was an officer in the US Army. And he actually led a brigade of about 60 men into California. And he met Colonel Jose Castro of the Mexican Army in Monterey. Now, Castro, who 
I believe is no relation to the Cuban leader Fidel Castro, who came much later, of course. I think then there's no relation there. But anyway, Castro sent the US soldiers out of California. He said, get out, basically. And so he sent them out. But this army brigade were determined. And later they re-entered California. And on the way, on the way back, they gained the support of some of the settlers there, the settlers who'd come from the, the east. And basically they got enough support to, to start a revolt in Sonoma flying the flag, flying a, a particular flag, um, the flag with a star and a grizzly bear on it. That's the flag of California. And they pronounced it the California Republic. So it was a kind of revolt, a revolution. They they went in there uh, and, and claimed the land, flying the California Republic flag. And this coincided with the general aggressive uh, movement into Texas by um, the president's, you know, um, army. And um, uh, this is President Polk's US army fighting the Mexican army in Texas and New Mexico. So there was fighting between the USA and Texas. And this had started along the Rio Grande River. And this fighting eventually reached California. Uh, the Bear Flag rebels from California, the guys who'd, uh, the brigade of soldiers who'd marched into California to claim it, uh, those rebels joined the US Army during this war. Um, and um, so the, the, the fighting force connected. And uh, this fighting continued into 1848, when eventually the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed, which ended the war. Okay, so this treaty... Uh, brought the war to an end, and it basically brought peace to California and also stated that Mexico had to give more than uh, 525,000 square miles of land to the USA. So basically, the USA sort of won this war and they claimed the land from Mexico. And this included the areas uh, between Texas and California and marked the extension of the USA's territory from east to west coast. So the USA had kind of fulfilled its destiny and claimed all that land. And there it was, coast to coast, the United States of America. Okay. Now, what happened next? What happened next is perhaps even more significant. And that was the fact that gold was discovered in California and this changed everything. Um, who was it who's discovered it? It's it's not that important, but it's it was basically discovered by a bunch of uh, land uh, farmers, I think. And they didn't really realise the significance of what they discovered. You know, they just found some gold in the ground one day and the news travelled pretty quick. Um, and as soon as the news had spread... It was pretty. It was pretty sort of. Well, it took a few months, but um, apparently, once people learned that there was gold in California, uh, people basically dropped what they were doing and just went to California to try and get their hands on some of this gold. You know, I've I've heard stories of people uh, doing jobs like police officers who just heard the news and literally dropped everything right there and then and just went to California. They borrowed as much money as they could and they just. Uh, threw themselves into a mission to get gold. Uh, this is the beginning of the California gold rush, okay? Um, 
So the first discovery of gold was in 1848 in the Sacramento Valley, which is basically between San Francisco and the Sierra Nevada mountains in that area. And that caused a few hundred local Californians to move there first. These are the guys who dropped everything and just went to this area to try and get uh, the gold. And also a few... probably about a thousand or so outsiders, people who didn't live in California, came into California to have a go at this gold. A lot of them struck gold. A lot of these early people did find gold and they became very rich. And uh, word of this success travelled pretty far and, and fairly quickly. And by early 1849, many people around the world had heard the news about gold being discovered in the new world in California. And then instantly, thousands of people were infected with gold fever. Um, the phrase that you often hear in this story is, there's gold in them, there's, there's gold in them, their hills. There's gold in them, their hills, which is the sort of uh, thing that people would say in a slightly kind of uh, crazy way. Like, there's gold in the hills. Um, So thousands of people travelled into California. 1849 was the big year for the California gold rush. And something like 100,000 people travelled to California in that year. That's a massive exodus of people into California. The people who travelled there in that year are known as the 49ers because they travelled there in 1849. So they're known as the 49ers. And this explains the name of the American football team from San Francisco. You know, the San Francisco 49ers. That's why they're called the 49ers. About 60% of the 49ers were from America itself, but the rest came from other countries all around the world, and many of them settled in California long-term, again, adding to the diverse culture of the place. The Chinese certainly moved there in very large numbers, something like 20,000 Chinese people in total, and many of them settled in the nearest port, which was San Francisco, which is why there is a large Chinese community there today in Chinatown. So 100,000 people is a massive influx in just one year. And the gold rush is certainly one of the most significant moments in American history. Um, So by the end of 1849, the non-native population of the California Territory was about 100,000 compared to the pre-figure, the pre-1848 figure of less than 1,000. So a total of $2 billion worth of precious metal was extracted from the area during the gold rush, which peaked in 1852. Um, And uh, the non-native population grew by about 1,000%. In, the, in, in about 18 months following the discovery of gold. So this represented a massive injection of culture, development and wealth into California. San Francisco, for example, quite quickly became a really large, very significant metropolis. Um, so yeah, the, the, the first people to get gold there did get rich, but fairly quickly the gold started to run out And I think it was very tough for a lot of the people who moved into that area in order to try and find gold. And uh, it was very crowded and there wasn't that much gold to find in the end. And uh, people were basically working hours and hours and hours and hours every day. Um, And often they would only find enough gold to just basically keep them alive for for the day. They would spend almost all day 
uh, up to their knees in freezing cold water, going through the, the sand at the bottom of, a, of the riverbed. Um, it was incredibly tough. But they were seized by this sort of dream, this idea that they could find the mother load, which was this sort of idea that there's somewhere in the earth there was a large collection of gold somewhere under the ground it was sort of like made people a bit crazy that they they would search and search and search until it killed them because they believed that one day they were going to find this huge crop of gold under the ground many of them didn't make it you know um what about the native americans well it wasn't a good time for them really essentially the united the usa's expansion west particularly in search of gold and land it just didn't fit in with the way of life of the natives. The two cultures just couldn't really live together. And because the American settlers were more numerous, they had better technology and weapons. And because the Native Americans were vulnerable to diseases carried by the settlers, the natives just couldn't hold on to their way of life. And they were either killed or forced to live in limited areas known as uh, reservations. Um, and... Uh, so it's sad because the natives were people who had learned to live in harmony with their environment um, and they basically got wiped out or forced off their land and treated like animals in many cases. Um, they weren't really treated like people. It's sad. It's heartbreaking, really, what happened to the Native Americans. It almost doesn't bear thinking about because it's too sad. Um, by about 1852... Even though the surface gold had basically disappeared, lots of people continued to make the journey west in search of their fortune and a better life. And they continued to make that journey for decades as California continued to be seen as a place where people could have a better quality of life. Uh, if we fast forward to the 1930s, um, this period in American history is also significant because it saw another fairly big movement of people into California, again, in search of a better life, this time as a result of the Great Depression and the environmental disaster known as the Dust Bowl across the Midwest of the United States. So you know about the Great Depression. It was a financial crash, I think, in 1929, similar to the one that we experienced um, in 2008, 2007, uh, there was a big financial crash that caused a big uh, depression in the American and global economies. Um, but also there was a huge environmental disaster too. And the two things combined to create very harsh conditions in the Midwest of the United States. So the environmental disaster was the Dust Bowl. And this is basically, this was the result of a huge drought in the early 1930s in large farming states from Texas in the south to South Dakota in the north. South Dakota, it's called South Dakota, but it's in the north of, of the USA. So a drought, that's basically when there's no water. It doesn't rain and the land becomes parched and there's no water in the land, so it's impossible to grow crops. Okay, So this drought affected a big stretch uh, of land all the way up the middle of the country from Texas in the south to South Dakota up in the north. And that there was a huge drought, and so all the crops failed, and the earth basically turned to dust. And within a couple of years, 
there were huge storms that carried the dust into the sky and far along the ground. So if you can imagine these big storms, wind storms that uh, blew all of the dust into the air and, you know, huge clouds and storms of dust all around that area. It made it almost impossible for families to live and to grow crops. So many of them just left the area and decided to make the very tough, arduous journey west towards California in search of a better situation. Okay. Now, I think I'm going to take this opportunity now at this point in the story to give you an audiobook recommendation. That's right. I'm going to do a little bit of uh, publicity for Audible and also just kind of make a recommendation for a good book that you could read. Now, in this series about California, uh, instead of telling you about the UK's favourite books, as I usually do, I've decided to give you some book recommendations that uh, relate to the California story. Okay. And so I've decided that uh, I'm going to recommend a story that relates to this movement of families during the Dust Bowl crisis in the 1930s. And I'm going to recommend a book by a man called John Steinbeck. You probably know John Steinbeck. You've probably heard of him. Uh, A great American author. And the book I'm going to recommend, the audio book I'm going to recommend, is called The Grapes of Wrath. Um, And you can get it on audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash teacher Luke and you can start a trial and you can download an audio book for free of charge and so on. And and so the recommendation I'm going to give is The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. Let me tell you a little bit about this book um, so that you know what to expect. So um, John Steinbeck, the author, lived in Monterey. Um, which is one of the places I visited on my trip. Um, and it's one of the early settlements, you know, one of the, the first sort of main settlements in um, California. Um, so I thought that I would pick one of his books. And I think that this one is probably his most celebrated work. Um, it has a rating of 4.5 out of 5 on Audible, which is really high. And the book is widely considered a great classic of American literature. Um, It was written in 1939, after the Great Depression of the 1930s, um, and the book follows the story of a family from Oklahoma who are forced to make this long journey across America in order to try and settle in California. It tells their personal story uh, of the difficult journey, but in doing so, it also manages to capture the epic narrative of a whole migration of people into the American West. Um, Steinbeck creates a drama that is intensely human and yet majestic in its scale and its moral vision. It's tragic, but it's ultimately stirring in its instance, in its insistence on human dignity. Um, Here is a quote from a listener's review of this audio book. The quote goes like this Um, From start to finish, each one of the characters, because they're so well formed and realistic, evoked empathy, but never to the point of pity. Every character bore their share of hardship. You walk away from this experience feeling stronger for having been in their company. These were people to be admired. And that was by R. Solomon from New Hampshire. I think what I'm going to do is actually play you a little sample of this audio book. It's um, I suggest that you pick the version read by Dylan Baker. It's the unabridged version, and it's the more popular version on Audible. Um, Let's have a little listen to a sample of that book. So in this sample from the audio book, you're going to hear, well, just a, a, a description of of one of those dust storms. So if you can imagine a field in the Midwest of America, in Oklahoma, a cornfield, 
with uh, the wind blowing and because the earth is so dry, all the dust is being blown into the air. And it dis- it Steinbeck is so descriptive and he manages to get across the sort of brutality and harshness of the Dust Bowl. So let's have a little listen to that. Now the wind grew strong and hard, and it worked at the rain crust in the cornfields. Little by little the sky was darkened by the mixing dust, and the wind felt over the earth, loosened the dust and carried it away. The wind grew stronger. The rain crust broke and the dust lifted up out of the fields and drove gray plumes into the air like sluggish smoke. The corn threshed the wind and made a dry, rushing sound. The finest dust did not settle back to the earth now, but disappeared into the darkening sky. The wind grew stronger, whisked under stones, carried up straws and old leaves and even little clods, marking its course as it sailed across the fields. Okay, that's just a little description of uh, one of those dust storms. But what uh, Steinbeck manages to do in this story is that he takes you on this journey with a family, with a family of individuals, and you get to know them and you get to understand the way that they deal with this epic challenge in this context of of this environmental situation. Um, So that's my recommendation in this episode. Uh, Go to audibletrial.com forward slash teacher Luke, and you can just sign up to a 30-day trial with Audible. And that includes a free audio book download. So you can just download a book of your choice. Could be this one. And uh, if you don't like the Audible service, you've got 30 days to cancel. And if you do cancel, you can keep the audio book and that's fine. They're okay with that. Uh, That's part of their policy. So um, you can do that. You can get it for free. Uh, Or if you want, you can just choose to stick with Audible and continue to to get a a new audio book every month. It's up to you. All the details are on my website. Just go into the menu where it says uh, free audio book offer and all of your questions will be answered and it tells you exactly how to sign up and how to cancel. So you can check that that out. Now, let's get back to this little... Well, I I said earlier on it was going to be a brief history of uh, of California, but... Uh, brief. What what do I mean by brief on Luke's English podcast? Apparently that means 45 minutes worth of history. But I think it's a good story and I think it's worth knowing these things so that you understand more of the context. And that's going to kind of um, help you to understand where I was and what it really means, this place. You know, it's history and geography help you to understand the psychology and the personality of a place um, it's, some people call it psychogeography. You know, a place can develop its own personality and that's as a result of the landscape and the things that have happened there. It really leaves its mark on that place and it somehow defines what it's really like to experience living in that area. Um, so the gold rush was a very important time for America and also the Great Depression of the 1930s. Um, this migration into the West, which was involved in both situations and to a larger scale across the whole previous century of American history at that point, this was really the embodiment of the American dream, particularly the, the, the gold rush. The idea that anyone 
was free to just start from the bottom, any normal person. Um, and if they had the strength and they had the courage, then they could make their own fortune by driving west, claiming their own plot of land and delving into the rich American soil to produce shiny gold and riches or an escape from hardship and into liberty. So this is the embodiment of the American dream, such an important ideology. Um, it defined a nation. These days, people still go west in order to search uh, for uh, a fortune um, or some sort of everlasting freedom, but not because of gold anymore. But no, uh, now it's in search of stardom on the silver screen. Um, Los Angeles and the Hollywood star machine continue to be an attractive goal for many people, although it's nowhere near the same scale as the original gold rush. Um, nevertheless, California maintains its image as the golden state and is still considered to be a golden land where fame and riches can be found. Um, generations of immigrants have been attracted by the California dream. Uh, California farmers, oil drillers, movie makers, airplane builders and dot-com entrepreneurs like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg have each had their boom times in the decades after the gold rush. California is also a very popular destination for tourists, holiday makers and honeymooners and dreamers. Um, it's still associated with the American dream and all that it offers. But that vision of America may eventually have its downside when you've basically made it across the country and you've made it to the golden land, the gold has run out and yet the dreams remain. And what seems to happen is that people seem to lose it a little bit or they feel that their idealism and perhaps the n naivety um, are challenged by the reality of arriving at the final frontier. The final frontier. When we talk about frontiers, we're talking about the big barriers that had to be crossed in order to get to the West. The rivers, the deserts, the mountains, the forests, the canyons. These are all frontiers. Um, and now we're dealing with the final frontier because all those frontiers have been crossed. So American in now, it, in it, it's sort of, uh, its national identity is one of uh, managing to overcome these different frontiers. So what's the what what frontier remains for the USA? Well, maybe the frontier of space. It could be outer space, like traveling into into space as they did uh, with the moon landing um, in competition with the, the Soviets, of course. Um, or maybe even the frontier of inner space uh, or spirituality or just the general meaning of life. Uh, that may be why people on the West Coast seem to be a bit far out. You know, there's lots of spiritualism, yoga, new age thinking, and so on. Um, and um, perhaps also that's why they're into movie making too, uh, because it is the dream factory. Um, also, there's plenty of entrepreneurialism in business technology, especially into another frontier, and that's cyberspace. And as I mentioned earlier with Facebook and other software and social networking companies. Um, so in fact, there's a big list of companies in the Bay Area of San Francisco, uh, which have kind of adopted this entrepreneurial techno technological um, innovative spirit 
and there are a surprising number of sort of internet companies, these big companies that we all use. Um, and here's a list of them. Facebook, Pinterest, Tesla, Hewlett-Packard, Cora, TuneIn Radio, Google, Skype, PayPal, Logitech, LinkedIn, Groupon, Uber, Android, Intel, Apple, eBay, AOL, and Yahoo. They're all based in um, the Bay Area of San Francisco. So the kind of entrepreneurialism and the frontier spirit continues, it seems. Um, let me now go back to um, the story of, of my uh, holiday experience. So I think I'm still only at the sort of second day. I think in the last episode, I only told you a little bit. So let me tell you about some of the things we did on our first day, really. So I remember, remember I'd booked the car and all that stuff, this ridiculous American muscle car, really fun to drive. Um, so we decided that we would drive the car downtown to have a look at the downtown area, get some food, just get used to the place, take it easy a little bit because we were still sort of suffering from a bit of jet lag and also do some shopping and stuff. So I... Um, I drove because my wife doesn't drive, so I was the driver the whole time, which is fine by me because I loved driving this Chevy Camaro that we'd rented. Uh, that was a lot of fun. So, um, um, yeah, I drove the car downtown. Lots of traffic in LA. You spend half the time just sitting in traffic, to be honest, which is quite crazy because you have a look around and there's like these three or four lane highways and all the cars are just crawling along and you look in all the cars and it's just like one person in each car it's crazy really if you took all the cars away and you just left the people there'd just be lots of people with like loads of space between them all um, I saw a, a, a picture on the internet somewhere recently of a, a street with lots of cars on the street with a person in each car and they and they showed you in the next picture uh, what it would look like without the cars. And there's just all these people with loads of space around them. And then they, in the third picture, they show you uh, what, it would be, what it would look like if all those people were sitting in rows as if they were on a train or a bus. And it turned out that a huge road full of cars is the equivalent to about one train of people. You can fit the same number of people into one train with about three or four train cars you can fit them all in sitting on, you know, a seat each with three, ro you know, three seats per row. And, uh, and, that's, and that's it. So this whole transport situation in LA is quite ridiculous. And it would be way more efficient if they just had a decent public transport system. But no, they're, they're all happy in their cars. Well, happy. I wonder how happy they are. But that's the dominant way of life. Everyone drives and they sit around in huge traffic jams with the air conditioning blasting. Um, so we had a little bit of that. Not the not the, the best part of the holiday by any means, but, you know, still the sun is shining, the palm trees are swaying in the breeze. Um, we got to the downtown area. One thing we noticed in LA was there are huge paintings and murals on, on the sides of buildings. Huge, big murals. And there's some really fantastic and very large artwork on the sides of buildings. It's more sophisticated than graffiti. It's not just graffiti. It's a lot more sophisticated than that. And some of the artwork is really excellent. 
Um, if you want to see pictures of some of these things, then you can check out a link here on the page for this episode uh, on laweekly.com. There's, you'll find a link there. Have a look and you can see something like 10 of the, uh, the best LA street art murals. Really amazing, beautiful um, murals. So I parked my car in a car park. There are lots of car parks. Um, I call them car parks in the States. They're called parking lots. Uh, you know, you have these car parks with a usually sort of uh, uh, a Hispanic guy sitting on a chair under an umbrella and you pay him a certain amount and you can leave the car in there for a while. We parked in a car park with this huge, beautiful mural of all these swans flying through the air. It's really, really uh, good looking. And we decided to walk around. We went to a downtown market where they had all these food stalls, like really great food stalls and things. And we had some Japanese um, bento boxes and some nice coffee and everything. We went to the Grammy Museum. You know, the Grammy Awards, they are um, annual music awards. Uh, They give these awards to like, you know, the top song or the top artist or top album or different types of music. So we went to the Grammy Museum to check out this music exhibition. And uh, it was a really good exhibition. I recommend it. If you're in LA, go to the Grammy Museum. It's really good. And there there are like interactive music uh, exhibitions where you can sort of like pick up guitars and drum, play drums and play keyboards. You can play along to other tracks. They have like these little uh, recording studios where you can go in and, and sort of remix people's songs and things. Um, and one of the best things about it was this whole area with these big huge tables with big glass interactive computer screens and headphones. And you go there and you you stick the headphones on. They're like really good quality headphones. And you've got this big glass screen. It's a bit like a sort of super futuristic computer from uh, like a Tom Cruise science fiction movie or something with all these discs and buttons and and lines and things and you press buttons on the screen and you can listen to different types of music and it's a huge sort of uh, interactive map um, which allows you to take a journey through all of these interconnected musical genres and they have all different types of music and they've got a huge database of songs and you can kind of basically explore the history of music and the all the interconnected forms of music. So you can listen to, for example, um, you can listen to hip-hop and they have, you know, some of the, the um, classic hip-hop tracks, the defining hip-hop tracks. But then there are little lines that show you the influences on hip-hop and it kind of allows you to explore all the different interconnected genres of music. Really brilliant. I could have stood there for hours just listening to all the different musical genres. Um, There was a huge Taylor Swift exhibition at the Grammy Museum. You know, Taylor Swift, she's a pop star. Um, This is probably because she was due to perform a number of concerts in the nearby concert hall. So it's some sort of corporate like sponsored exhibition of Taylor Swift's stuff. So it was all Taylor Swift things everywhere. Um, In fact, it was weird because it seemed that Taylor Swift was following us around California because wherever we arrived, whichever city we arrived in, she seemed to be doing a concert there that evening. So it's like she was following us around California. And also we kept hearing one of her songs um, on the radio all the time. That's the song called Shake It Off. Do you know that one? Um, 
and we we heard shake it off all the time especially in the the museum gift shop at the grammy museum where it appeared to be just playing in a constant loop all day the song was it, it would play and then it would just repeat again so the the shop was just constantly playing this song i can't imagine what that was like for the people working in the shop. Can you imagine working in a shop for eight hours and just hearing Shake It Off by uh, Taylor Swift again and again and again? Now, I used to work in a a music shop. I worked in HMV in Liverpool, so I know what that's like. But we used to repeat albums. I remember for something like a month when I was uh, working in HMV, they played uh, the Shania Twain album, over and over again every day for a month. So I heard that album, oh God, hundreds of times. Those Shania Twain songs are just burned into my brain now. And the the, the annoying thing is they played the album for a month and then what happened? Well, the DVD came out, didn't it? So they had to play the DVD of her live concert. So I got the DVD for a month as well. So, oh, that was terrible. And then after I'd worked in HMV, I went and worked in a pub um, back in my hometown, and guess which album the manager of the pub played every evening? Yes, that's right, the Shania Twain album again. Uh, but that was a whole album at least, but not just one song again and again and again. So I can't imagine what that did to the brains of the staff that were working in the shop. I actually quite like the song Shake It Off. Um, I think it's a great pop song. I'm not a huge fan of Taylor Swift, but I have an appreciation for a decent pop song. You know, it's commercial, it's super catchy, it's full of hooks and so on. I'm not sure about Taylor Swift herself. Um, She started out as a country artist and then recently she sort of switched over into R&B a little bit. So she's kind of made the switch from country to R&B. And I think it's worked out for her because she's immensely popular these days. I don't really like any of her other songs, but Shake It Off for me is just a a perfect little pop song. In fact, um, let me play some of it to you. I'm sure that there are some people who can't stand Taylor Swift, but um, uh, I just want to play some of the song to you anyway, just so you get a taste of uh, what we kept hearing. Uh, It wasn't just the Eagles, but we also got this, which has seemed to be the pop song of the moment. But it is a, a, a classic pop tune, very catchy, and it's all about basically a girl who's kind of a bit misunderstood, but she doesn't care what people think of her because she's just doing her own thing. I see out too late. Got nothing in my brain. That's what people say. Mm-hmm. That's what people say. Mm-hmm. I go on too many dates. <laughs> but I can't. Shake it off, I shake it off, I never miss a beat. I'm lightning on my feet, and that's what they don't see. 
So there you go. That's Shake It Off by Taylor Swift. I'm sure that you can buy it online. You can probably get it on iTunes and all that sort of thing. Is she on iTunes? I think so. Um, anyway, if you want to get it, you can just buy it, can't you? But Shake It Off. What does Shake It Off mean? Well, I suppose in this song, really, she sort of means she's shaking off criticism, shaking off people's judgment. Imagine you've, you've just washed your hands. Here's an image. You've just washed your hands. You've got water all over your hands. There's nowhere to dry your hands. So you just shake the water off, you know? So in a similar way, you can kind of like shake off criticism or shake off people's bad opinion of you. Just shake it off and you're all right. You, you know, it doesn't bother you. So that's really what the song is all about. But it's a very catchy tune. Um, so um, so we saw this, the, the, all this Taylor Swift stuff, but really the Grammy Museum was like really interesting, really good. Later that day... Um, we, I, I managed to book um, tickets to see a show at the Hollywood Improv because um, uh, LA is a big comedy town, just like New York. In New York, I went to the comedy. We went to the comedy cellar and saw Louis C.K. So this time, I thought, right, let's go and see some more comedy. And so we booked in to go to the Hollywood Improv, which is like a a great uh, comedy venue. Lots of um, uh, like uh, very well-known and successful comedians and actors have performed there over the years. Like Robin Williams uh, was known for doing performances at the Hollywood Improv and other people, Richard Pryor, stuff like that. So we went down to the Hollywood Improv to check out some comedy and to have a bit of food. And we saw a, a show, a really great show, which I have mentioned on the podcast before, which is called Set List. And the idea of Set List is that the comedians have to go up onto the stage and they don't know what they're going to talk about. They've got no idea um, because the set list is uh, randomly given to them. It's basically projected onto the screen behind them. So random words and ideas are just projected onto the screen and the comedians have to try and make comedy uh, instantly from these words and phrases. Now, professional comedians are amazing because they can just improvise comedy from nowhere. So it's amazing to see them doing it live, just coming up with I funny ideas, constructing jokes live on stage. And some of these guys were brilliant. It's very tough for them. And you can see that they're really scared while they're doing it. But that's interesting to see them go through the creative process right there on stage. They weren't all good. Some of the comedians were a bit crap, really, to be honest, but then others were brilliant. But that's the nature of, of this set list show. Um, you know, it sort of tests the comedians. And so sometimes they're brilliant. Sometimes they, they don't manage to do it very well. But at this point, my wife and I were really suffering from the jet lag. Um, it was really getting to us. And I remember we were both sitting there drinking coffee to try and stay awake. And, you know, we really wanted to enjoy the show, but I, both of us couldn't stop nodding off. You know, there's nothing worse. I can't stand that when you really want to stay awake, but your body's just falling asleep. So we're kind of kept drifting in and out of consciousness, which made it a little difficult to enjoy the show. And also I got the, I got the impression that, like, I don't know, like half the audience and even half the performers seem to just be high. Again, this is this, this LA thing about being high on weed I got the impression that some of the performers were high. In fact, I know one of them was high because he said that he was high. So this sort of marijuana culture in LA is uh, quite widespread. And I, I felt like it affected the show a little bit. The show felt a bit sloppy and the audience felt a little disconnected. 
Maybe that was just us who were disconnected because we were falling asleep from jet lag. I don't know. But there was this weird sense that, that half the room was a bit high. And so it, uh, it was a bit of a shambolic show. Um, but it was still great to actually be there in the scene in LA to check out the locals and to listen to the comedians and just sort of, you know, to soak up the atmosphere and, and all that stuff. Um, we That night, we just went straight back to the hotel room and managed to watch a little bit of American TV before we just passed out in bed. Now, American TV, let me just, I guess, finish this episode by talking about some American TV. Um, American TV, goodness me. It's just commercial break after commercial break. You hardly get a chance to watch any content before it's another commercial break. Like the way that shows work is obviously you start with commercials and then you get the opening credits of the TV show. Let's say it's Friends or something. You start with a commercial break, then the opening credits of the TV show. And then there's another commercial break before the show's even started. And then you get a bit of the show and then another commercial break, a bit more of the show. It's just constant commercial breaks. It's really disturbing. Um, And many of the commercials are about treatments for health conditions. Like so many adverts for health insurance and medical solutions. It's really weird. And it's hard to actually find any content on TV because it feels like it's about 50% adverts. So you flick through the channels, you know, just going through the channels, you flick through the channels and it's just ad after ad after ad. and You can't find any content. Um, but saying that some of the late night comedy and chat shows that we've watched were really great, you know, things like, um, what is it? Um, the late show with Jimmy Fallon and, um, last week tonight with John Oliver and other shows like that. I saw something with Hannibal Barres and some other things that was really good. Um, uh, Fox news is a total joke. Um, I mean, they're so biased. CNN doesn't seem to be that much better, to be honest. It just feels like the whole thing is way too glamorous and just doesn't feel objective or incisive enough. And I also got the impression that sometimes it was almost a slightly an inappropriate level of positivity in the news. Like the, the news reporters have to constantly be smiling and, and glamorous and, you know, that's seem to be at odds with the stories, you know? I always get that impression that American news is always so positive. Have I talked about that on the podcast before? You know, like, uh, when police raided the serial killer's mansion, they found just a little more than they bargained for. You know, that sort of thing. Here's John with the story. And then, you know, you go to John... John John Thomas here at the serial killer's mansion. Uh, we're here. We are in the basement, and uh, yes, we've discovered something interesting here. That's right. It's a leg. Um, it's a, uh, is it is it news or is it entertainment? It's difficult to know sometimes. Um, um, but saying that, you know, some of the reports were really great and everything. I'm not saying all of American news is terrible. It's just different, I suppose. It's just a little bit of culture shock. Uh, There's a presidential campaign going on in the United States at the moment because there's going to be a presidential election in 2016. Uh, As you're probably aware, uh, Obama has will have completed his two terms as president. So there'll be a new president in 2016. Who's it going to be? Donald Trump is dominating the news. 
And Donald Trump, you know, is this big, successful businessman celebrity who made his fortune in American real estate. He's basically a right-wing free market capitalist businessman rather than politician who says whatever the hell he likes and appears to be running for president purely because his ego is in overdrive. He's saying, let's, let's make America great again. Um, his, his skin is more orange than the sun. His hair looks like it should be captured and studied by scientists. And his views on immigration are pretty disgusting, really. For example, he recently said that Mexican immigrants into the United States are rapists and thieves. Pretty outrageous thing to say. And that if he was president, he would start by building a huge wall between the United States and Mexico and that the Mexican government would have to pay for it. Right. Okay. Good solution, um, Donald. Obviously, I'm being sarcastic, which should have been obvious. Is this the man that we want to be in charge of one of the uh, biggest and most most potentially lethal countries uh, in the world? Um, I wonder. Uh I, I hope not, really. Um, Hillary Clinton will probably win, but I wonder about her connections to all those corporations. She certainly seems a lot more uh, reasonable than Trump and most of the other Republicans. But um, we'll see. But, uh, you know, there's some questions about her uh, her dealings and her... Uh, there's some question of corruption in there, possibly. Some sort of private email... Um, database that she was using which isn't completely honest um there's another democrat uh, candidate called bernie sanders who seems to be pretty reasonable kind of fairly left-wing candidate for the usa uh, the other republican candidates don't really seem to be that different to each other you've got jeb bush and jeb jeb bush is well he's another bush do we need another one um but, I mean, he even he seems pretty normal compared to Donald Trump. Um, so American politics is fascinating, entertaining, and also a little bit grotesque and scary in some ways. Um, but it's, it's uh, certainly, um, certainly entertaining, uh, that's for sure. What a country. What, what a country it is indeed. Um, okay, I think that I'm going to bring this episode to a close. This is, oh my God, I've only got to day two. I've only got to day two and this is the second episode. I promise I'm not going to do an episode for each day. You'll see that in this episode, most of it was taken up by that history of the of, of California, which um, I think is interesting. I hope that you found that interesting too. Um, what I will go on to tell you about in, in uh, forthcoming episodes is, well, I'll go on to talk about more of the things that we saw and what we did. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about grammar. I'm going to make some comments about the sort of verb tenses that we use when we tell stories. Most of the time we use past tenses, but sometimes we use present tenses to tell stories too. So I'll mention that in a bit um, on in, in future episodes of this series. Um, what else? Um, I've got other stuff. I've got some more uh, rec- book recommendations, some f- movie recommendations. Um, 
I would like to look at the lyrics of some songs. I might go through the lyrics of either Californication by the Red Hot Chili Peppers or we're going to have a look at the lyrics of Hotel California by the Eagles because, in fact, that song is is a little bit darker than you might expect. You probably imagine that Hotel California is all about sunshine and and, uh, the good vibes of California. It's actually a lot darker than you might think. And the song itself actually allows you to kind of go fairly deep into the 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 sort of psychology of life in in Los Angeles. So it's really interesting little case study, cultural case study. I'm also going to teach you some British and American English as well. So focusing on differences in vocabulary. Um so we'll we'll be looking at that too. Um bit more history as I move around uh the the area of California, some stuff about wildlife in Yosemite National Park. Uh, what else? The, the Church of Scientology. So we'll we'll have a look at Scientology, which is an interesting um, situation. Um, what else? What else? Um, I'm going to tell you about Robin Williams and a bit about food that we ate. Um, and also, of course, don't forget that I met um, AJ Hogue. Uh, the guy who does Effortless English. So you can listen to my conversation with AJ Hogue as well. Um, and stuff about the hippies in, in San Francisco. Um, and also, what else? What else? Loads of other things basically are coming up. So I hope that you agree that this is not just a description of a holiday, but also it's a bit of a broader look at the whole culture, history and language that you come across in California in particular. Okay, thanks very much for listening. As ever, leave your comments underneath the page for this episode at teacherluke.co.uk. I always want to know what you think about the things that I've been saying. What are your thoughts? What are your impressions? If you've been to California, tell me what you think of the place. If you haven't been, tell me what you think of the place anyway. Um, have conversations with each other. It's not just your chance to talk to me. You can you know, communicate with other listeners of this podcast using my website. Don't forget that you can join the mailing list so you can get updates for whenever I post things on the website. But also you can subscribe Whenever you leave a comment, there's a little button, a little box that you can check if you want to subscribe to comments, and that way you get notifications when people reply to your comments and stuff like that. So that's a good way of keeping in touch. Um, all right, that's it. I'm going to end this episode right here, right now. Thanks very much for listening. I'll speak to you again soon, but for now, it's just time to say goodbye. Bye, bye, bye. Thanks again for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk.